And really what we're, we're focused on is uh, both the advocacy side of things, right? Showing, hey, you know, where, where consolidation happens and makes sense or employment happens and makes sense, like, fine, right? But there are, when it's the corporate practice of medicine gone haywire, it usually doesn't end up being a very good result. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 230 of APM Success. Very pleased to be joined by a special guest to whom I was recently introduced, Jack Dillon. Jack is the Chief Executive Officer at Anesthesia Practice Consultants in Michigan and also the Executive Director of the Association for Independent Medicine, which is not going to surprise our listeners. I'm excited to hear about that in our conversation today. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So uh, we were mentioning, you know, we we're discussing before we hit record, I would love to hear what is the day, a day in the life of a chief executive officer of um, an anesthesia group or a practice consultancy? What does that look like for you? Sure, sure. No, no, absolutely. The uh, Our name might, might fool, you know, anesthesia practice consultants. Um, a lot of people assume that we do consulting, but we're actually a large independent uh, physician owned and operated anesthesia practice uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We cover a, a lot of the area in West Michigan, um, you know, about 27 different buildings, 140, 150 anesthetizing locations uh, every day, do about 160,000 cases every year. Uh, so a large independent anesthesia group. To say we're fiercely independent would be an understatement. Uh, we really enjoy being independent. We've, we, we have uh, really done well being independent, and uh, we get a lot of attraction, uh, candidates and, and the like, to come to our group because we are independent in, in the, and what, we're, what we've built here. So we're quite proud of our practice and all that we do. My day, right? CEO, right? It sounds very business oriented, but it's a little bit of everything, right? It's a little bit of obviously the communication piece for I think any any leader is the biggest part of your day, working with your various teams, whether it be scheduling, whether it be billing and coding, whether it be your human resources or finance teams uh, on whatever the day may take you, you know, different objectives that you need to get accomplished, right? That's the that's the stuff that makes sense. You're, you're aligning with those teams. And of course, right, working with our physician leadership on, on um, things that are happening throughout the practice, problems we need to solve, which is a nice way of saying putting out as many fires as we possibly can to just get to the fires for the next day, right? But a lot of my job focus is, is, is around our operations and how we run in this ever-evolving and ever-more-difficult healthcare landscape, right? I don't think anybody would disagree that it's probably more difficult now than it's ever been. And, and no one sees that turning around. So a lot of my focus is how can we do things better? How can we become more efficient, which is a, is a, a nice buzzword there, but really looking at the the work that we're doing, how we're doing it, and and partnering with every place that we provide anesthesia care to, um, you know, make sure that we're we're doing all we can for our patients in our community, and and that's probably the biggest, most important, and and honestly, what I enjoy the most out of this job is is really digging in deep and finding the areas that we can make this thing really run, and of course, keep ourselves independent. So. You mentioned uh, the ASA Advance Conference, so that's like the the practice management and s like 
overarching specialty strategic thinking meeting of the minds. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious because yes. I wasn't there. What are the smart people yeah. who are looking out on the horizon talking about sure. at the advanced conference? Were there any themes that kind of rose to the fore? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, staffing is going to be the biggest one. I think staffing's been it's felt like the biggest one last year as well. And I'm sure it's felt like the biggest one for, for quite some time, right? The work has grown. Uh, people are, are doing more and providing more care than, than, you know, uh, whether it's offsites, whether it's more services, more rooms, whatever that might be. Um, so staffing becomes the biggest theme is what are retention strategies? What are people doing to, you know, attract people to their practice? Um, what are innovative ways to staff and schedule that really make it, better for your team. And so I can say categorically that there's always a lot of good ideas, but no silver bullet, right? I, I think the answer and the theme out when it comes to staffing, uh, especially for whether you're an independent practice, an academic medical center, anywhere, is it's just going to take a lot of really hard work and a lot of um, strategic thinking about Pro, whether it be program growth, whether it be training programs, all of those things are the only answer to get us to a better state when it comes to, you know, making sure that we can provide provide coverage. Second to that, it's probably a little bit of proximity bias, but, you know, independent practice was a, was a big one for me, of course. You get drawn into that conversation a lot, both in, in being an independent practice as well as, be, you know, uh, helping, you know, be a part of a large national now effort for independent practice. So a, a lot of connectivity there, a lot of stories there. We're hearing a lot nationally about this is what's happening over in this area. Uh, you know, this is what happened at this hospital. And it's become quite a theme. And then, of course, all the other great topics. I think the, the conference is incredibly valuable for, you know, thought, think tank style, right? It really, it, everybody that goes, I think, finds it pretty invigorating to kind of move your mind a little bit from what you've been doing the, the other 360 days of the year uh, to kind of push you and say, hey, you know, whether it be financial or HR or how to deal with difficult people, it, you get all those themes as well uh, out of the conference. It's interesting to me that sort of the independent practice uh silo or whatever you want to call that group of people like in the corner yeah. of the you know <laughs> the conference <center. laughs> yeah um, i've always had this thought like if you if you ever get an email from like the asa and you scroll down to the bottom where it says thanks to our sponsors and you just look at the yeah. logos there none of those are like <laughs> they're what we would traditionally call yeah. independent practices and uh i'm curious sure. like what is the sort of the dynamic of that conversation obviously it's healthcare is complicated and it's political even and specialties are political and um, yeah. who are like, what, what is the sort of the nature of that dialogue at a place like advance? Yeah, sure. So I think it's, it's, you kind of nailed it, right? I mean, it, it's all different walks of life and people trying to learn and understand how different people are working, whether they're part of a large national, whether they're an independent practice, whether they're part of an academic medical center, you're learning all of these, these things. And so the dynamic becomes very much that. Um, as you can imagine, it can get tense sometimes, a lot of emotion, right, you know, behind some of from some of those topics. Uh, certainly encountered that at the conference a little bit. But at the same time, I think everybody's there to really listen and learn and kind of understand and uh, and decide kind of what are good situations and where have things worked out really well versus where situations that, you know, haven't worked out so, so uh, very well and and what are the the lessons there so it is it's a lot of dynamic right it's um you, you mentioned it 
there's a lot of names out there, large national groups. You don't see, even though we're a big practice, you know, our, our name isn't necessarily out there as much. Right. And, and I think conversations about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And because I think for years is there was this perception that independent practice was quote unquote dying off. Right. And while there's, I don't think any data yet to support this, the, the feeling is that there's, you know, a, a rejuvenance or a push um, uh, toward back towards uh, that, that model of practice. And it is uh, geographically uh, asymmetrical in terms of which markets are seeing consolidation and where, you know, some places there's only one game in town or two, where others are much more um, egalitarian in terms of the different practice models and and the representation there amongst physicians. Um, So many... I'm not a cus- I, I'm excited to talk to you, uh, Jack, because I feel like you're, there's so many different things we could talk about, and I, I want to like use this time the best we possibly can. Um, <laughs> sure. So tell me about the uh, Association for Independent Medicine and sort of the the genesis of that, and what is it now, and what are you sort of offering to associated groups? Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks. Uh, yes. Yeah, so about a year and a half ago, um, we were actually at the advanced conference two years ago, uh, I guess we would have been at the advanced conference. And then about a year and a half ago, we, we founded the Association for Independent Medicine. And it, it bore out of a lot of the themes that we're seeing nationally. Um, we're seeing, you know, that consolidation, we're seeing people being displaced because of, you know, corporate practice in medicine, and, and that really impacting areas and people in hospitals. And there's a lot of stories that I'm sure we can jump into. And so, uh, our group, uh, along with a group out of Chicago, a group out of the east side of the state near Detroit, Michigan, uh, a group out of Wichita, Kansas, and then a, a group out of Oregon. Let me make sure I'm getting everybody because I don't want to miss anybody, right? And then, uh, yeah, as well as a few other groups and independent, even independent physicians uh, decided to co-found the Association for Independent Medicine. And um, and really what we're, we're focused on is uh, both the advocacy side of things, right? Showing, hey, you know, where, where consolidation happens and makes sense or employment happens and makes sense, like, fine, right? But there are, when it's the corporate practice of medicine gone haywire, it usually doesn't end up being a very good result. Um, one of our, one of our groups experienced exactly that. And, you know, that hospital is now short staffed, has been short staffed for now over two years now. Right. And it, it didn't work out the way that I think anybody really wanted it to. And so we're really looking to connect with other practices, um, and, and sell and tell this story and, um, and make and enable practices to have a, a bench to go to, to say, Hey, there's there's a reason why an association like this forms uh, when the corporate practice of medicine you know takes things to a negative place. The other side of our association is really focused on uh, the practice management side of things, what you could call the things that somebody like myself would do day in day out, which is you know the practice management piece and the governance piece of you know the best way to ensure you're you're going to stay in independent practices by running a solid practice, right? And, um, and ensuring that you have longevity and sustainability. And so uh, whether it's, you know, like I said, group governance and, and how your group is running, uh, how you partner with the locations that you serve, how you recruit and retain your people, like all of those themes and things are places that all of our groups can learn, right? I, I might be the executive director, but the, 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 that doesn't necessarily mean that I then have all the answers for people to come to what the association has become is a a group of, of 
of groups that can then share and benchmark and figure out what's working, what's not working, right? You know, a good a good example of that is uh, discussion on number of physician board members or management committee members, right? Our, our, our group has 12, right? Some groups have three, other groups have five, some have seven. Usually it's, it's an odd number. We have an even number, you know, but that's usually how groups, well, we, we could talk hours as, as a group on, on what's, what's effective. And again, it's, it kind of depends on, on, on how your group is structured and the culture of your group. And so partnering with groups and, and bringing in new groups to, you know, talk about those things to ensure stability and independence is, is what we're all about. When groups reach out to you, either just because they're interested or for prospective membership, what are they looking for? Do they have like a pain point that they're usually trying to address that tends to be consistent or is it kind of all over the map? Yeah, I would say the main point is that corporate practice of medicine or, or down the line of we're going into our contract negotiation. What are all the things that we need to know? Right. And what, what, what are, what's a good contract? What's not such a good contract? How did you structure your contract? So contract and, and, uh, incorporate medicine are, are definitely the top themes, but it, it is after that kind of a smattering of, you know, how do you guys manage your data? What, what EMR do you use? I would say the, the, the second biggest theme is what partners, vendors, services that you need to run your practice. Do you trust, mm. right? We had a bad bad time with this billing company or this, you know, benefit platform or this scheduling software, what worked for you guys, right? Like, and, and how did you use it? And that I think has become incredibly important and powerful because what works for us might, might not work for others, but what we're finding more often than that is that, you know, even though it's, it's six groups with a, you know, a few others ancillary involved, you're finding a lot of the pain, same pain stories. And I think it's helping streamline, Hey, you know, these, these are the services that will really help support your practice and that we've had good experience there. So, yeah. What is the state of the corporate practice of medicine? Maybe just take a minute and define what that is. And then how is yeah. it like, are there any markets where it's particularly problematic or particularly insulated from its ill effects? And how do you interact with that? Yeah, uh, great question. So corporate practice of medicine, right? Um, I, I don't know that there's a, a dictionary definition, um, but you kind of know it when you see it. And it's usually when financial motivations become higher than taking care of the community, right? And, uh, and, and while there's, you know, certainly, you know, large groups that can support an area and, and it works out really well. Uh, when the number one uh, motivator is financial, it ends up not being a good story. And so you're starting to hear a lot of stories. Oregon is right now, I think, top of the news and everything that's happening there, right? Um, yeah. We're watching that even from from Michigan, right? We're seeing it. Uh, one of our association members is, 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 is in the Oregon market as well. And, uh, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you just as kind of an anecdote, right? When that, that news broke, it took about two, three weeks uh, before uh, one of the leaders of one of our hospitals sent it to me over text message and said, hey, did you see this? This sounds terrible. Could this happen here? Right? And, you know, I, my response, because I have a good relationship with this person was, well, as long as you and I get along, we'll be just fine, right? But, um, but, the, but it, it creates a lot of like turmoil of, is this something that can happen? Um, Texas has, has also been of question and what's happening there, but I don't know that there's really a single state or, or area where you can say it's happening just here. I think it's happening nationally in different markets where 
and I, but I think where it starts is where that market had a need, that hospital had a need, that group had a need, whatever it was. And then, then the story has kind of evolved from there. I think the Oregon story is, is one that I think, like I said, everybody is watching, everybody's hearing about it's, you know, and I think it's really going to tell the story uh, quite a bit of, of exactly what happens when corporate practice of medicine doesn't impacts, a, you know, impacts a hospital, impacts a community. Are there any other markets in the last, if you think back to the last three or four years, we can maybe tell us a story of like mm -hmm. what unfolded in that market with the groups that were involved and how corporate practice of medicine yeah. was expressed in terms of like boots on the ground experience? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, commonly, right. Happened in Illinois. Um, I know it's happened in, in the South quite a bit, you know, Florida markets as well. I think what, what the story that we hear is large national or corporate practice comes in, you know, works with the hospital leadership for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes it's aligned because they might have, you know, similar ownership or aligned ownership structure in some sort of way, right? It's, it's always the story that's a little bit deeper. Um, but, you know, in most cases, right, you watch the the clinical team, the physicians, and, you know, in our case, an anesthesia, right, nurse anesthetists and anesthesiology assistants kind of pull out of that space, Right. And then so that that hospital is now left without staff. And so uh, the large national corporate group brings in locums. Right. And it never adds up to be enough. Um, usually you can get a bolus of people in the beginning. But the way those deals are often you know, structured is it doesn't make a lot of long term sense to keep people there or that large group that is now, you know, contracted with the hospital has to go back to the hospital and ask for more usually money, um, uh, or they offer their services to make them quote unquote more efficient, which means we just have to, you know, consolidate your rooms and, and limit your staffing. Right. And so, um, so those are stories again, I, I whenever, whenever you read them, those are the ones I hear about. Those are the, the groups that when they come to the association for independent medicine and they reach out to us, those are things that we hear. And, and again, I, I always agree with the statement that every, every story is a little bit different, right? We can share these stories, but, uh, you know, whether it was this weekend at advance, whether it was, you know, um, a call that we have with a new group, you tend to smile and nod because it's a story that you either have lived through or one of the other partner groups on in the association or one that we know of has also lived through. Yeah, it makes sense. Tell me in terms of the way that this is evolving and the way it's impacting your practice, is there anything that you're worried about today, this year that maybe a year or two or three ago was not on the radar, but it's sort of manifested itself recently? Yeah, I think, you know, everybody that you talk to in, in anesthesia, especially is going to say staffing and recruitment, right? But uh, I'll add the, the another leg to that staffing and recruitment issue, which is new entrance into the market of, of surgical center space, right? So, you know, here a lot of these large national groups that are interested in, in, uh, in starting a line of surgical centers, right? Uh, I won't name names, but you know there there there's a lot of interest in in because it and it makes sense. It's 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 profitable work, right? And so my concern, right, becomes if those places start to pop up, right, co like coffee shops, then we're going to be dealt with a dilemma, right? As a it, it, there's going to be that not only more financially and commercial right payer work that's outside the hospital. But the bigger, right, the bigger motivator is going to be that balance, right? So surgical centers don't have a call team, right? Um, and so as that work gets 
pulled out. And, um, and some of these, you know, large organizations have the dollars to, to pay, right. Nursing staff, anesthesia staff, tech staff to, uh, to ensure that, you know, they, they have their, their team. What does that look like for hospitals? Um, so this, this, you know, if we don't solve the burnout and the autonomy um, uh, in terms of individual, you know, schedule autonomy problems soon, those entrants into the market are, I think, going to create even uh, another layer of complexity, as well as for, you know, if I'm honest, right, I, 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 I want to support our community. I, I, I have great relationships with all of our hospital partners, but I also have a, a practice to run, right? And it's, it's somewhere between, you know, I, Hey, if there's, if there's work out there that, that, that you can continue to sustain your, your practice long-term, that, that might be something that you, you know, have to consider while your staffing is still stretched. Right. And so what does that mean long-term? So I, I think that that really is something going forward that's going to be, uh, an issue. Um, and of course there, there are states that have certificate of need requirements. Michigan happens to be one of them, but I mean, there aren't many certificate of need states left, right? So you have to, um, you have to wonder in those spaces, you know, there could be exponential growth in in the surgical center space. Yeah. The counter argument to that would be, is it bad? Will not the invisible hand of the free market reach an equilibrium at some point, or are we just going to have a bunch of empty ASCs that we built and financed and now yeah. vacant? How, how would you react to somebody who's like, well, maybe, you know, CON feels like a, it's like the mafia trying to keep out people who are just trying to open a small business and like sure. meet a met need. I, 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 I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Uh, you know, I, I can't, and you know, I, I'm the, I'm our group's resident MBA and the, um, so, you know, those business concepts, I certainly, certainly agree with Let the market bear what the market's going to bear, so to speak. But at the end of the day, it creates quite a, day-to-day operational nightmare um, of, of, and a strategic one. Um, luckily in my market, I can tell you uh, that I, we have the relationships with the places that we go, the hospitals that we, that we, that we can have these, this open dialogue, but I don't think that's the case for everybody. Right. And, uh, and so that becomes, and even outside of just being an independent group, I would take it a step further, right? If you're employed by a hospital and suddenly a surgical center opens up across the street and they're offering you Monday through Friday, you know, end of days between four o'clock and five o'clock. And it's, you know, similar compensation to what you're at the hospital. I mean, who, who wouldn't take that? Right. I, I, I heard more than once this, this past weekend that I don't want to spend another day in the hospital. Right. I, I hear that from people coming directly out of training or who've only been practicing for a couple of months. What can I do to get out of the hospital? Right. And so I don't envision that, that concept slowing down at any point in time. So to answer your question, it's, it becomes, while I agree and we'll see where that goes, I, I also, it's going to be, you know, people like us that are going to try to solve that problem. I'm sure you feel the same tension that I do. I, as a, an advocate for individual physician families and practice owners and such, like, yeah. well, I solve the micro problem, the macro problem. It's a big problem. that's too big for me to solve. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge the uh, inherent, um, you know, the cognitive dissonance or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah. I don't want doctors to be burned out, pissed off, quit early, you know, hang up their medical yes. degree because they can't take it anymore. But I also want to be able to like, you know, get a surgery when I need one or have aging parents or other family members be able to access care. So it's, you know, it's the 17 different ways that there's things need to change. It is. Yeah. 
Yeah. On that macro level, right? Like the, and just kind of going down that line, you know, it also, one of the themes that I see again, no data to support it, but I, I hear this quite a bit is that, you know, when there's a perceived quote unquote, good situation in one practice or, or healthcare system, people will get up and leave to go there. Right. And that, that good situation then becomes compounding, right? If I'm short staffed five people and the practice across the state is short staffed 10 and that practice says, well, they're only short staffed five. And if I go over there, they're only short staffed four. Well, now, you know what I mean? Like that, Zero I think is, yes, it really is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's happening more than we really acknowledge. Right. And so, you know, that's why I think a lot of the theme is, Hey, what can you do to recruit and retain? And like you said, not burn our, our physicians out. I can tell you, I have a hundred percent observed that phenomenon with clients of mine who are <laughs> in a bad practice and their friends are leaving and they're like, why the heck should I be the one to go down with a ship? And who can yeah. blame someone in that circumstance? That's just, yeah. you do what you need to do to, you know, pay your own bills. I want yes. to ask a very basic question that I should, I feel like I probably have known the answer to in the past, but I'm t- in terms of billing and billing for anesthesia services, do, providing anesthesia at the hospital versus doing it at a surgery center. I understand like payer mix or the difference between payers in terms of compensation, but is there a, like a site of service differential that would apply if you're doing a surgical uh, procedure at a hospital with anesthesia versus in a surgery center? From an anesthesia, from an anesthesia collection standpoint, no. I mean, you're, you're just going to benefit from usually more commercial payers. Um, and then the second benefit is, you know, that, it's it's true everywhere surgical centers tend to run leaner and a little bit more efficient than than the hospital hospitals are big big buildings right that are going to have a lot a lot more operate so so that does then translate into cost right and so and even the hospital right any hospital you go to i would i would certainly say that you know they're the hospital and surgical centers are going to find that they're more efficient there than they are at the hospital but no not from a uh, not, not from a side of service standpoint, we get, we get paid the same. You mentioned something earlier that I want to circle back to in terms of the mm-hmm. outlook for independent practice. Cause I, I'm glad that you're mm-hmm. optimistic and it's, obviously mm-hmm. I think you got to sort of break this down by specialty. Cause for some of them, I don't see any yeah. path out of the woods for independent to come back, but, but it's not the same for every specialty. So tell me about what you're mm-hmm. seeing in your, you know, in anesthesia and what it is that makes you optimistic mm-hmm. that, um, some sort of swinging of the pendulum may bring things back towards uh, independent land? Yeah, no, great question. I I am optimistic, not just because of the roles that I'm in, but, but I, but I, I think there's a lot of demand for, and I think a lot of the theme for a number, number of years was I'll take the hospital employed job or I'll take the the large group job because, you know, that's stable. And I think that that can very well be true and in, in great markets. I think uh, speaking, you know, specifically in anesthesia, again, the, I think what we're seeing, right, is, uh, is more people, people driving towards more, more autonomy in their life, that, that life work or work-life balance, whichever one you prioritize first, right? And so, and so you're seeing people become locums, right? And, uh, you know, I can say anecdotally, right, you'd get some locum agencies that would send you a, a stack of resumes and, you, you know, not to sound critical, but some of those people were locum for a reason. And you'd, and you'd say, oh, I don't, I don't know, we, we probably can't go, go with this individual. Now you're seeing a lot of people who are doing it to gain that autonomy and gain mm-hmm. that balance who want to work specifically. And so I think 
the combination of that and the combination of technology being our friend, frankly, of being able to run a business leaner and faster with all the tools that we have, there's a lot of push for people to go independent again and and work the way that they want to work. And I think out of that will bore, and I've seen it happen in, in, in a few spots, you, you have a couple of, you know, people that pull out, become low, whatever, and then they start forming their own their own entities, right? And so I, I think that we're going to just see more of that, um, especially as I mentioned that the surgical center and the independent surgical center space grows as well. I think that that's the direction I see uh, going, not fully in anesthesia, but I, th- I think we're going to see those themes. I have observed the same phenomenon and I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to work to figure out why I've seen these like either a whole hospital or a whole site of service that's like a branch of a bigger anesthesia group where there's there's like this opportunity for independence that happens and and there is you know all of a sudden local autonomy exists and whether it's like an independent company that's formed or contracting collectively with the hospital as part of some sort of mm-hmm. transition my my sense is that this is happening more with anesthesia and maybe it's because that's just the water I'm swimming around in, but it seems like it's happening more with anesthesia than other specialties. I, I wonder if that's true. And I wonder uh, if there's like economic drivers there in terms of how the reimbursement works or the fact that it's already sort of untethered from like the compensation because the, the RVU keeps getting slashed and slashed and slashed hospitals. Like if you need anesthesia, you got to pay more than what Medicare is going to pay anyway. So because of that decoupling, it's already a little bit more sort of free market esque yeah. in terms of the price setting. Did, did, have you observed that? Mm-hmm. And do you have any insight there? Yeah, I would agree with exactly what you said and the way you said it. I, I think there, there's a lot of, of that theme happening. I think as everything across healthcare has become immediately more expensive the last couple couple of years, there were salaries have risen, you know, for staff and, and things are, you know, hospitals are really, you know, just having to pay more for the same work. Where are you going to lean? Well, you're going to lean in the place that 65 to 70% of your revenue comes from, and that's your operating rooms, right? And so I think you're you're right. While it's happening in other specialties, you're really seeing it in anesthesia, because people want that right that that service, and they want as much of it as possible to capture as much of that volume as possible. You know, I, I said this weekend, I, you know, our group feels very much like partners with with the places that we cover, and we can work together to align schedules, and, and it feels very good. And and you know, I don't want to paint it as sunshine and rainbows because it's also hard work, but but we have that going for us. Whereas other people in other markets feel very much like their anesthesia practice or their service is just a light switch. I'm here when you need me. Um, not here when you don't need me. And and that that arrangement might be be very beneficial. But I think we're you know to keep going with that theme. You're seeing that light switch stay on a lot longer than it used to. Um, and 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 you'll and places hospitals across the country will take as much of it as possible. I want to cover one last topic in the time we have left here. I'm curious how the No Surprises Act and the way that it's evolved in the last couple of years in terms of how we understand the arbitration process and all that. If you have any thoughts on like the impact that you've observed, yeah. how that's impacted any of your member practices with AIM mm-hmm. and any of the thoughts you have about how you think it may develop and impact the specialty going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think when it all started to come out, everybody was very concerned. Right. And I still think that there is reason to be concerned. Our, our practice hasn't admittedly have to, had to deal with it. 
uh, quite a bit, and I was involved up front before our state legislation went through uh, with our state society and and, and a few other um, entities in the state to try to say, hey, you know, give us the information that makes sense. How does this process actually work? So I can speak to it, you know, from our practice, like what actually occurs. Uh, I can say in the, in the few things that have been arbitrated, gone to independent IDR or independent dispute resolution, it, it's worked out. All right. Um, and so I think the what I would describe it as is the process is is ill-defined, um, but my experience has been that it, it actually, it's okay. That said, I've heard of cases, especially, um, I think there was one out of maybe Tennessee that was, you know, that that took 18 months to arbitrate. And uh, I don't know if exactly that state, but there, there are pretty bad cases of, of, of arbitration taking too long or not not being a reasonable representation of the work that was uh, that was done. And so I, I, I've wondered if this will just take time and evolution to get to a place where it's a little bit more uh, manageable and we understand kind of those guardrails a little bit better. That's my hope. I think everybody agrees, right? No one wants a patient to get stuck with a, with a surprise bill and, and one that they can't afford. Um, and again, you know, a practice like ours, we work with patients and we figure out, you know, how no one ever gets sent to collections by our group, right? And so we work with patients. I don't know if also that's the case. And when you look at corporate practice of medicine, right, because I know that there's some some fallout there as well. But when it comes back to, to that, I can say conversations between practices and, and payers just need to be positive, right, and and representative of the work that was done, and then hopefully the resolution will will work itself out. So uh, much more to see on that front, Justin, for sure. It seems like the groups that have been pretty, uh, you know, uh, practicing what I would call like an ethical business practice in the past as it relates to billing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they yeah. haven't been like really zapped <laughs> in this department. Right. They're like, holy cow, like 40% of our revenue dried up because we were just balance billing people $13,000 for that procedure yeah. and they didn't realize like practices that were being yep. normal and equitable, I think, ha- have not suffered. But I, I think and what I'm hearing you say as it relates to the independent uh, dispute resolution process, I think one of the places that even practices that acted equitably have been uh, hit it has been the more they've been pushed into the IDR. I think there was a, like a higher cost to our, to adjudicate each case that I, yes. I, I, and I don't understand like the state courts and how it impacts national policy, but I know in Texas it was the per per, per case adjudication price was significantly lowered. But even so, because historically the, and this was another thing that was challenged in Texas, the uh, the median in network rate for the different payers was a a factor that was heavily weighted to determine what mm-hmm. is the fair price for the procedure was incentivizing yeah. commercial payers to push out all of the, you know, to push people out of their networks who were, had a higher yeah. negotiated per unit rate to lower their median in, in network rate to then be able to push lower prices all yeah. the way down to the physicians who were trying to have their cases adjudicated. So have you interacted with that at all or experienced any ill effects with your practice or heard any stories about how that might work? No, and thankfully I haven't. <laughs> to be honest, uh, that does sound like a an administrative nightmare, frankly, to get to a place that you should get to anyway. And 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 frankly, in those in those cases, we have to ask ourselves, what's the actual 
savings there, whether it's time, effort or, or money, right? Like that's a lot of work to get to a, you know, 1% difference in what was originally going to be paid to what was actually paid, right? Like, and so the, I, I can see how those things can happen, but thankfully I haven't had to personally deal with that. And I don't know any of our member groups that have either. So, uh, so hopefully that is a good sign for groups that are um, operating fairly within the market aren't going to experience those types of things. Cool. Well, we'll wrap it there, but Jack, I can tell I'd, we should have another on the record conversation in the not too distant future. Jack Dillon, CEO of Anesthesia Practice Consultants and the Executive Director for the Association of Independent Medicine. Thanks for joining us today on APM Success. Hey, thanks, Justin. Take care. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.